Today's scripture reading comes from Luke 14, 12 through 24. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field. I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. You may be seated. Ta-da! That was like the like, you know, chimes in the background, and the magic happens. Okay. Uh, well, assumptions are dangerous things. Famous last words. I assumed that you fill in the blank. If you think from Home Alone, if you've seen the classic, uh, Kevin is a six-year-old, and his parents are um, taking a European vacation for Christmas, which is a pretty nice vacation to take for Christmas, by the way. And they're halfway across the Atlantic Ocean, and all of a sudden, Kevin's mom like, wakes up and says, Kevin! And they have that conversation, I assumed you got him! No, I assumed you got him! So there's a humorous, slightly terrifying example of ways that assumptions go wrong, but assumptions typically are not a good idea. When you're newlyweds, you bring all kinds of assumptions that hopefully 
in your premarital counseling are addressed, but you, know, you assume, I saw my parents grow up in a certain way, and I assume we're gonna be the same way. So my family plans our vacations out five years in advance. That's the way it's done. Or maybe both your parents worked, and so you assume we will both work, or maybe one parent worked, so you assume, well, one of us will work. We bring these assumptions in, and we assume that's the way it's gonna be, and that leads to miscommunications and misunderstandings and ultimately fights and hurt feelings. If you're an engineer and you assume things, bridges collapse. So that can be pretty bad. And then in our intellectual life, when we assume things, it leads to insular and blind thinking. But assumptions we approach God are probably the most serious, and they have the deepest and longest consequences. These can be assumptions about who God is. Have you ever heard someone say, well, I could never believe in a God like X, Y, and Z. We have assumptions about how God should be, but then there are also assumptions about what God thinks of us. So God is my father. I'm his child. He loves me like a child. When we assume that, we get into bad places. And here's the thing. There's a difference between assurance and assumptions when you come to God. So when we seek God's face, we examine our hearts, he, he assures us of his love for him. But when we assume that God is our father, that God loves us, we just assume it and we take it for granted without any evidence. An assurance, true assurance, where God assures us, will lead to worship and transformation, but assumptions lead to boredom and oftentimes kind of a legalistic self-righteousness. And that's what we see with the Pharisees this morning. The Pharisees are kind of the religious superstars of their day. And so if anyone was kind of on God's good side, it would be the Pharisees. They assumed they had a right standing with God. But in their assumption, they had in fact rejected God's invitation, which comes only by grace. And so what we'll see is that when God's invitation is rejected by those expected, he then extends it to the unexpected. And that's to our good. So here's our outline this morning, just so you can follow along. First, we're going to look at this assumption of the Pharisees, this subtle assumption. And this kind of provides the, the mm, cause for the teaching that Jesus then gives in the parable, which has two points, which is that God's invitation is rejected by the expected guests, but then God's invitation is extended to the unexpected guests. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to have it open and, and be following along. It's one of the best ways uh, to be able to engage with, with, with God's word this morning. And just to remind us of our context, we're in the same context we were in last week. So it begins in chapter 14, verse 1, where Jesus goes over to the house of a ruler of the Pharisees for a Sabbath day meal. And uh, while he's eating dinner, this is a pretty momentous dinner because there's three separate teachings that Jesus gives. The first is verses 1 to 7 where he heals a man with dropsy and he has a, a confrontation with the religious leaders on how they view the Sabbath. Does God value sacrifice or mercy more? And then last week, we looked at the parable of the wedding feast, of the great reversal that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And then finally, we have this third teaching all happening at this very momentous meal, which is the parable of the great banquet. Now, we're going to be looking at verses 15 to 24 mostly. Verses 12 to 14 are kind of a transition between where Jesus continues to talk about the humility of the kingdom, which is not just how we view ourselves, but who we want to invest in, who we want to spend time with. We throw parties for those who can never honor us in return. Because as verse 14 says, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And that is, is, is what keys us into our text this morning. Because we mentioned this resurrection of the just, 
one of those sitting there in verse 15, read it with me, one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things and said to him, yes, and blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So Jesus is talking about the reward that happens at the resurrection of the just, and someone says, yes, blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. And you're like, okay, I don't understand how these two things, we're talking about the resurrection, now we're talking about eating bread in the kingdom, what's going on here? So I want to give a little bit of background to understand, because there's clearly some concepts that everyone seems to understand that aren't explained here. And so what, what was happening is they're looking at some Old Testament themes of the kingdom of God. And we see a picture of this in Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 to 8. I'm going to read this for you. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And God will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, and he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. What's Isaiah what's this 25 referring to? It's well, typically what we think of as heaven. It's when this age ends and there's the resurrection and we go and we spend eternity with God in his presence, life with God. I don't like the word heaven that much because it's so supercharged with pop culture references. And so we think of heaven, we think of playing a harp on a cloud and forgive me if that doesn't excite me. But what he describes here is a party, a banquet. Not a banquet for those who are trying to watch or wait this is rich food, calorie-heavy food, meat and potatoes and butter. It's interesting. This is how God chooses to describe heaven, life with him. Very physical way, very, a way that I think we can get excited about. So anyways, so when, when, the, when the Pharisee stands up and says, blesses everyone who, break, who eats bread in the kingdom, he's, he's referring to these images in the Old Testament of life eternal with God, which they use often a banquet to describe that to try to get at the joy and the delight of life with God forever, which is what we call the kingdom of God. But before the kingdom of God comes in its fullness, before we enjoy this banquet, there is the resurrection of the dead. And so that's why when Jesus mentions the resurrection of the dead, which must come first, that's why the Pharisee says, oh yes, and blessed will be what comes next. Blessed will be those who eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, this is a very true statement. It's a very beautiful statement, because it's true. Blessed will we be when this comes true, where God will wipe away the tears from all faces, when the covering that is cast over all peoples will be removed, the veil that blinds us will be removed, and we'll eat bread with God, and we'll forever rejoice. Blessed are those who will experience that. Absolutely. But what's strange is how Jesus responds to this statement. Like, this is a statement that gets you stickers in Sunday school class. Like, yes, absolutely. But Jesus responds with a parable that ends in verse 24 with a pretty harsh rebuke. Why does Jesus respond this way? It's because of a, an assumption in this Pharisee's language. His assumption is that, yes, the kingdom will be great and I will be there. Right? I mean, he's a Pharisee. They're the religious rock stars. They spend their time reading the Bible. They serve people. Like, if anyone's going to make it, it's going to be the Pharisees. So he just kind of blandly assumes, yep, I'll be there, and it's going to be awesome. God gives us 
or Jesus, gives this parable in response to this assumption. So this brings us to our second point. So our first point, again, is a subtle assumption. And our second point is God's invitation rejected by the expected guests. So in response to this assumption, Jesus gives a parable. Look at verses 16 and 17. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet, and he invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. So they sent out invitations. The people have RSVP'd. Now, uh, uh, any party we throw, there's, there's preparation. And, and, and at this time, again, before the day of pre-packaged food and ovens and microwaves, like, it would take you maybe a week to prepare a banquet of this magnitude. This is not a, you know, come over for hot dogs. This is like a, a serious, formal, kind of gala-like celebration. And so he announces it in advance to, hey, we're throwing a party. People RSVP were coming. And then the day of the event, the meal is ready. And so you would send your servant out who would go and tell people, okay, the, the, the food is warm. Come to the party. That's what's happened. Look at verses 18 20, though. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, well, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I've married a wife, therefore I cannot come. This is rude. This is deeply, deeply rude. To RSVP, allow them to go through preparation, and last minute say, well, actually, I don't think I can come anymore. It's like when we think of weddings. When you invite people to weddings, or when you RSVP to a wedding, you don't wake up the day of the wedding and decide, boy, I don't feel like going anymore. Because for one, if they're catering, they're paying by person, and they've paid for you. They can't get their money back. And two, most people getting married, they agonize over their wedding list, over their invite list, because you can't invite everyone you've ever known. And so you probably took someone else's place. And so that kind of, you know, if, if you're not coming to a wedding that you have RSVP'd to, there needs to be a good excuse, a good reason. You can't just wake up and say, well, I got to catch up on my Netflix shows. And so these, it have been the same here. It's been incredibly offensive, incredibly rude. And so what are the reasons they give? And just keep in mind as we go over these reasons, these are reasons for why they can't take one night away. This is not like, you know, a destination party. This is like, come for the evening, four to six hours. These are the reasons why they can't fit that into their schedule. First, a man buys a field, and he needs to go inspect it. Now, some commentators think there might be some legal obligations. You think when you buy a house, there's inspections and, you know, closing dates that you have to be there for. You're legally obligated. Okay, well, that might be present. So it doesn't answer the question of, okay, well, you knew this party was coming. Why didn't you work this out in advance so you could inspect it the next day? But that being said, okay, this might be somewhat of a legitimate excuse. The second was that a man bought five pairs of oxen. Now, the idea here is this is a, a wealthy man. The average small farm would have one to two pairs of oxen, so he just bought five. This guy's got some resources, and he's like, I've got to go inspect my oxen. Okay, you can't wait till tomorrow? Like, they're not, you, just, you already bought them. Like, you're going to have them the next day. They're not going to die. That's the excuse he gives. And finally, the third, third guy, he just says, I got married. I'm not going to be there. He's not even begging off. He's just like, I'm not going to be there. I got married. And we all, I mean, for those of us who are married, those of us who have friends who've been married, we know there's that newlywed phase where the world fades for about three months and no one else exists. But it's like, really, you can't take one night away? You've, to fulfill your obligation as someone who has already RSVP'd. Here's what's really interesting, though, about these excuses and these reasons. 
is that they all involve real life scenarios. They're dealing with like our commercial financial obligations we all live with. We all have jobs. Maybe we bought a house. We have bills to pay. Like this is real life stuff that we all engage in. Dealing with domestic duties. Like I got married. I mean, we all, maybe you're married. Maybe you have kids. Maybe you have parents who need to be cared for. Or you have brothers and sisters who need to be cared for. These are real life scenarios, real life circumstances that Jesus is, I mean, he could have just had them all say, nah, I want to go, you know, paint a picture or something. That's just ridiculous. But he uses like real life busyness as excuses. What is Jesus getting at? Well, first, what Jesus is getting at is that you can want the kingdom of God and yet want other things more. You can want the kingdom of God, genuinely want it, but yet when push comes to shove, you want other things more. The guests were all invited, and, and, and at one point they said they wanted to attend. Like, yeah, we recognize this is a good thing. But when the day of the party came, other things are more important. The, the credibility of their reasoning, of their reasons they give, is not the point. Some of them are more credible than others. The point is that every single one of them, when the day came, found other things more important to do with their time than attend the banquet. And Jesus is using this, using this as a criticism of the Pharisees. Again, the Pharisees are, are assuming, of course, we'll be the ones in the kingdom. We're the ones who preach the kingdom and teach the kingdom to all of Israel. But here the king has arrived. God has extended his invitation through his son Jesus, and the Pharisees have ended up wanting other things more than the kingdom of God. And they want approval of, I mean, of the people. They like the standing they have as those who are honored as rabbis, as teacher. When push comes to shove, they'd rather have that than the kingdom of God. They want the influence and the power that they have gained as, as being known as experts in the Bible. They'd rather have that than have God. Maybe they wanted mon money and comfort. The Pharisees wanted the kingdom of God, but when it came to the end of it, they wanted other things more. I think that can apply to us. You know, we all, we live in a busy world. We have many things calling for our attention. I think the greatest hindrance for us to Christian discipleship may not be a specific sin, maybe. But for many of us, it's probably not a specific sin, something we're doing, but it's just a busy absorption in things of life. We have domestic duties. We have commercial duties. We have this, that, and everything. It's the death by a thousand cuts. Now, Jesus is not saying, okay, so quit your job, leave your family, and just spend your time as, 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 as a monk in a monastery somewhere. It's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is nothing can compete with your devotion to him. Nothing. Not even family. And this is why right after this story, what comes next in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, if you have your Bible open, just look down there. Two verses after our parable, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. There will always be reasons to put off following Jesus, to not pursue him with our whole hearts. There will always be reasons. Nothing can compete with our devotion to the Lord. Again, he's not calling us to quit our jobs or leave our families, but he's saying, all the things that you do, do it to the glory of Jesus. Do it in his name. Do it in your devotion to him. And by the way, there may be some things you need to quit. If you're so busy that you have no room left in your heart for the Lord, 
There will always be pressing reasons not to follow Jesus. The first point, you, you can want the kingdom, yet want other things more. But the second point, what Jesus is getting at in these, these three men who, who provide reasons not to come to the banquet, is, is he's saying you can want the kingdom, you can want religion, but not want the king, but not want Jesus. The Pharisees longed for the kingdom. They were the most religious people you will meet, but yet they didn't want Jesus. They didn't want the king. Now, one thing that's worth mentioning about this, this text is this is the last time in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus eats a meal with the Pharisees. Again, Jesus would eat with sinners and the Pharisees, two groups who equally needed the Lord. One of them just didn't recognize they were sinners. But he would eat with them. But this is the last time that he eats with them. He continues to engage. But this is kind of a last opportunity of that kind of intimacy we experience where we go over to someone's house and, and they feed us and we have a chance to talk to them and ask them questions. This is kind of the last opportunity Jesus is giving to the Pharisees to recognize who he is, to recognize the invitation by God that he brings in his person. So I want to talk for a second about the Pharisees because they miss it big. We've got to ask, who are they? So 150 years before Jesus came, Israel was living under the domination of the Greek Empire, the Seleucid Empire. And the Seleucid Empire was weak, and they were trying to strengthen their hold on, on all the lands they held, and they were trying to kind of Hellenize, so introduce Greek culture as a unifying influence. Like if we all have the same cultural lingo, the same cultural references, we worship the same gods, like we'll have something that unites us rather than being these disparate little kingdoms. And so they were trying to force the Jewish people to worship Greek gods. They were trying to prevent the Jews from having, you know, the regular uh, observation of the law. And there was this Jew named Judah Maccabee, nicknamed the Hammer, Judah the Hammer, who led a successful revolt. They actually overthrew the, the Greek Empire, and for the next hundred years, it's called the Hasmonean Dynasty. It was a genuine Jewish kingdom that ruled with more or less autonomy up until Herod the Great, and then after that, they were just a Roman province. So who are the Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees were part of that revolt. They agreed, no, like, we need to fight back against the empire that's trying to force us to worship foreign gods. But then after the Hasmonean dynasty came into power, it became clear that they were not much better. They were just as secular and pagan as any of the pagan nations around them. They were not worshiping God. They were not obeying God according to his law. And so the Pharisees were a group who said, okay, we need to separate ourselves from the Hasmonean dynasty and pursue greater faithfulness to God as he's revealed himself in his word. By the way, the Sadducees, who read the New Testament, they were the Jewish religious leaders that stuck with the Hasmonean dynasty. And so by the time we get to Jesus' day, the Sadducees were kind of the, the rich, liberal elite. But the Pharisees, they were a party of the people. They had deep devotion to God's word. They wanted to take the Bible and apply it to every part of life. That's where all the traditions came that Jesus rebukes. They spent their time studying the Bible and then teaching it to the people. They were not rich. They were not wealthy. Sounds pretty good. Like, those sound like my people. So what went wrong? <laughs> what went wrong with the Pharisees that by the time we get to Jesus, when the king comes, they reject him? Well, again, they wanted the kingdom, but they didn't really want the king. They wanted religion, but they didn't really want Jesus. 
They wanted all the comfort of religious trappings. They wanted all the stability that comes with religious observation, but they didn't actually want the crucified and risen Lord. They did not want God to come in and throw all their plans out the window. You know, similarly with you and me, we can be very religious, but not have or even want Jesus. It's very possible. And Christianity is most fundamentally about knowing Jesus. It's not most fundamentally about having the right theology or the right creed. It's not most fundamentally about religious observance, coming to church, whatever other things we do. It's most fundamentally knowing Jesus. But as Christians, we can begin with Jesus with a personal trust in the Lord, whom we know, and then over time, very subtly drift into a kind of a Jesus-less religiosity. As the years go by, the decades go by, life gets busy, we have many things competing for our time, and what began with a confrontation with the risen Jesus, a love for the person Jesus who really exists and lives, slowly morphs into, well, just a theological conviction or just a religious habit. What else am I going to do on a Sunday morning? It's really subtle. And probably all of us are somewhere on that continuum, right? Unless we came to Christ yesterday, we're probably somewhere feeling that drift. Unless we're completely nominal, we're probably not all the way there, but we, that's the drift. And it can happen to all of us. We can want the kingdom, we can want religion, but not want Jesus. And if we find ourselves in a place where we remember the days when Jesus set our hearts on fire and we just don't feel like we're there anymore, we feel like maybe our faith has devolved into just theological convictions or just habit, remember that Jesus still cries out and says, whoever thirsts, come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scriptures say, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Jesus still is one who offers life and life abundant if you will come to him in your thirst. So like these three men, the Pharisees rejected God's invitation in Jesus. Those who, who, who the invitation came to first, the Israel nation, although they said, yes, we want the kingdom, when the push came to shove, when the kingdom came, all of a sudden there were other things they wanted more. Okay, well, what happens to God's kingdom? Does it stop? Is this like God has to go back to the drawing board and what's next? Well, this brings us to our, our third and final point which is that God's invitation is an extended to the unexpected guests. Look at verses 21 to 24. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. The master said to the servant, so go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled for I tell you none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet the point is that those whom the invitation came to first the Jewish leaders followed by the Jewish nation would reject the invitation and so therefore the invitation will go to those who would not reject it who by the way will not be those you expect to be in the kingdom of God and we pull out of this two theological truths that are really important. The first theological truth is that the invitations 
will go to the unexpected because God wants people at his banquet. God's not going to allow the kingdom to stop when the Jews reject it because he wants people at his banquet. Let's put ourselves in, again, the world of this parable. So the meal is ready. Those invited are saying no. Well, again, the meal's ready. They don't have refrigerators. There aren't places you can store it. Either it's going to be eaten or it's going to go bad. So the host says, okay, my original guests don't want it. We just got to find people. Go into the cities. Grab the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blame. <laughs> lame and the blind. I mix those words up. It's just... Go find people because this food is, is, is warm now and it's going to be dry and nasty if we don't eat this soon. There's an urgency. It's not like, there's no sense of, okay, well, we're going to delay the kingdom. No, the kingdom is coming. Those who first invited reject it, it will find other people. But look, as the host sends the servant out, the servant goes into the city, brings all the people he can find, comes back and says, but there's still room. And here we see the heart of God. And the master said to his servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. That's God's heart. He desires for all to know what life is like. He wants everyone present. As a side note, I wonder, when you think of God's presence, what do you think of? Think of God as a consummate killjoy. The guy who's just maybe upset with you all the time. You think of his presence as like an extended, boring Sunday school class. When God wants to describe eternity with him, he pictures a party. And not a party in the Hollywood sense. A party in the sense where we're surrounded by our friends and our family, those we know and those who know us and who we love. There's good, rich food that's more than you could possibly eat, and you're just loving being there. That's how God describes presence with him for eternity. That's the delight and the joy of being with him. And God says, and I want more people to be there. It's going to be so good. I'm not satisfied with just a couple people. My house has to be overflowing. So grab everybody. God is inherently outward-looking. It's the basis of the Great Commission. It's why we exist. It's why Jesus hasn't come back yet because there's not enough people in the banquet. And so we who are Christians, who follow Jesus, who worship God, we must also always be outward-looking. We are not satisfied. We want our neighbors to know Jesus. We want our coworkers to know Jesus because we want them in the banquet with us because it'll be so good. The kingdom will advance because God wants his house to be filled. It's the first theological truth. The second theological truth is that the kingdom will be beautiful because it will include the least expected. My grandpa, incredibly generous man, was also incredibly wealthy, very successful in his job. And when he retired, he retired to Long Island, uh, the North Fork, he bought a beautiful house overlooking the water with his own private beach in a private neighborhood that was called Paradise Point. Now the joke was that Paradise Point should have been called Litigation Point. Because it was all people in his demographic, so elderly people with too much money and too much time who just spent their days suing one another. So you, you planted a tree. It's obstructing my view. I'm going to sue you. 
To give you an idea of what this was like, I don't remember the details of this, but there's a guy who wanted to build something, I think on his beach, like a dock, and there were neighborhood rules and neighborhood association rules. You can't build stuff out into the water because it obstructs the view of other people. And so he was sued when he tried to build this dock, and so in retaliation, he built this hideous 50-foot-tall pelican on the middle of his beach. And he's allowed to do that because you can build on your beach, and so he's obstructing everyone's view with his hideous view, and it's like his you know, middle finger to his neighbors. That's the kingdom of man. All those people there worked very hard. They were very successful. They made lots of money. And so they could afford to live in this very posh, upscale neighborhood. They deserved to be there. And man, was it miserable. That's not the way the kingdom of God is. Look at verse 23. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Go out to the lame and the blind and the poor and get them and bring them in. <laughs> the people who are going to be in the kingdom are going to be the ones who you're going to have to compel to persuade. Why? Because they're going to say, wait, I'm invited? I'm invited? Why, why would he want me to come to his? Why would I get that honor? I don't deserve it. That's who's going to be in the kingdom of God. Not those who, like the Pharisees, are like, of course I'll be there. I'm a Pharisee. I'm so good. But those who are like, oh, you're going to have to persuade me because I don't believe this news. I don't believe that I would be so favored by God. Doesn't make sense. Again, the point is not that we have to gouge out our eyes and make ourselves blind. Rather, we have the same attitude. And this is, the, this is the beauty of the kingdom. This is the beauty of the kingdom. That it will be the rich and the poor. It will be the seeing and the blind. It will be the impressive and the unimpressive. It will be the Billy Grahams sitting next to the murderers who together are giving thanks that they of all people got an invitation. That will be the beauty of the kingdom of God. There's a quote from G.K. Chesterton's work, Orthodoxy, that I spent so long looking for and I didn't have time to read the entire book this week. So I am quoting it from memory, and this was like 12 years ago, so I'm probably getting this completely wrong. So with that caveat, though, G.K. Chesterton, at one point in his book, he says the church, and he talks about the people, not the church building, of course. But he says that the church from the outside may look dry and dusty, kind of stodgy, do these services every week. It's not very entertaining. Purveyors of kind of an outmoded form of belief. But oh, on the inside of the church, within is the Spirit of God, and there is singing and dancing and rejoicing. Why? Because we all say, I was so unworthy, but God made me his own. I was spiritually blind and poor and crippled. I could not walk. And I was out in my highways and the byways doing my thing, and Christ came and found me and said, come to my banquet. For there's room, and I want you there. And that's where the life of the church, that's where the joy comes from. And our joy now is only in part because we only see in part. We, by faith, still experience sometimes kind of whiffs from that table or echoes of that laughter that we'll experience, but we won't experience it in full until we're with Jesus. And so if the joy that we experience now in part, oh, imagine the joy when we're actually at the table. And at the foot of the table is Christ himself who invited us not because we deserve it, but because he's the one who says, I want my house filled. So go grab the blind and the poor and the crippled and the lame. Oh, 
Vine Street, the kingdom of God is here. The invitation has been extended. The king has come. Not calling those who deserve it, calling those who are so unworthy. It's not for those you'd expect, it's for the unexpected, for the guilty and the shameful, for those that the world neglects and disregards. And it's these who God takes and makes his sons and daughters in his kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, we long for the day when we will eat at table with you. Give us visions of that. Give us a genuine longing for your kingdom to come. I pray that we will consider nothing more beautiful and wonderful than being part of your kingdom, that we will consider no cost too great. Most of all, Jesus, help us to encounter you, that we might be reminded in the busyness of our lives that you really are better than anything else we could have, that you welcome us because you welcome the unworthy. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.